The Science Show on RN coming today largely from San Diego, where the Scripps Institution of Oceanography is doing so much to determine our future welfare. And last week we mentioned the Keeling Curve, that measure of CO2 pioneered by Dave Keeling, those atmospheric molecules so spare yet so significant in the air. Now meet his son, Professor Ralph Keeling, who's continuing to trace that curve. Well, we're pushing up towards 420 parts per million, or a little beyond that, 422 parts per million. And that's up from the early measurements that were around 315 parts per million in the late 1950s. So a big increase. Are you still in charge of keeping track? Well, I'm one of the team here at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography that's keeping track. I guess I run the group. But there are other groups around the world doing similar measurements, including other measurements at the main observatory at Mauna Loa. So there are close colleagues there are the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration making measurements around the world just like we are, as well as at this island site on Mauna Loa. What made your father start doing that? What was the inspiration? Well, he was uh, an example of being the right person at the right place at the right time. So he had developed a very precise method for measuring carbon dioxide that he was applying to actually initially study carbon in rivers, but he noticed that there was great regularity in the atmospheric abundance when he looked at places that were far away from influences like trees, which, by the way, take CO2 out of the air, and cars that put CO2 back in the air. There was also, at this time, which was the late 1950s, already considerable interest in the question of whether carbon dioxide might be building up because of fossil fuel burning and further might be changing climate. Uh, but all that was very theoretical. And among the big thinkers in that area was Roger Revelle, the then director of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. My father at that point was at Caltech, kind of just up the street in Los Angeles, well, 100 miles away. And they heard of each other, and uh, Ravel recruited my father to Scripps to run at what was then a pretty big and ambitious program. And um, among the elements of that, one that my father was especially passionate about was making measurements at Mauna Loa Observatory. Were they surprised by the results going up immediately or not? I don't think it was a surprise, but it was a really important finding because... The uh, expectation was that you might be able to see it rising, but not necessarily that you'd see such a clear indicator in just a few years. So Ravel in particular was of the mind that you'd have to do measurements all over the planet, do a statistical survey, and come back in 10 years and see if the statistics had changed. And what in fact turned out to be the case was if you just measure in a few places really well, you can track this change almost year by year. Hence Hawaii. Hawaii being remote from local influences. The observatory is near the summit of Mauna Loa, one of the big volcanoes on that island. So the observatory is well above the ocean, well above the vegetation on the lower slopes. It's in a, basically a massive lava field. It's a really pristine site for getting air that's far away from everything. So it was a, a beautiful site for getting representative measurements of the atmosphere, and it, it ends up being a pretty good indicator of how the whole northern hemisphere is behaving. I seem to remember when I was in Hawaii driving up and being astounded at how high you were and how the sun blasted down and burnt you if you weren't careful. <laughs> 
Yeah, one thing you notice when you go up at higher elevations, particularly if it's nice and clear, is that the sky gets bluer and your shadow gets darker. <laughs> and that's because you're partway to outer space. If you're in outer space, the sky is black and your shadow is black. So this is partway there. And yes, it is striking how bright the sun is and how stark the contrasts are. Before, when I interviewed you a few years ago, you were measuring oxygen levels. Are you still doing that? We are tracking oxygen, which is decreasing, along with carbon dioxide, which is increasing. They are both changing mainly for the same reason, and that's fossil fuel burning. So humanity is taking coal and natural gas and oil out of the ground, burning it, that releases carbon dioxide, and it also takes up oxygen. And those changes are effectively permanent in the atmosphere, or at least very long-lived. Should we be worried, as we already are, about CO2, but also about the oxygen depletion? The oxygen story is less concerning than the carbon dioxide story, and that's because the atmosphere has hundreds of times, maybe 500 times more oxygen in it than carbon dioxide. And the changes are at the same absolute level, which is to say a very, very much smaller relative level for oxygen. So these changes in oxygen are really small compared to the big background. And even if you project forward centuries at current usage, which, by the way, would be disastrous for climate, it doesn't add up to being a very big change in oxygen, one that would almost certainly have very little or minimal physiological impacts. Back to Hawaii, what's been the problem in recent weeks, months, with the threat to the observatory? In late November, Mauna Loa erupted for the first time since the 1980s, and this eruption spewed lava down a part of the mountain that cut the road to the observatory and cut the power. It did not touch the observatory itself, but it forced the observatory to shut down. So starting right then, we had no more Mauna Loa carbon dioxide records. We scrambled, along with our colleagues at NOAA, who I said, uh, as I mentioned, run the observatory and are the people who keep the staff on site, to set up an alternative on the nearby Mauna Kea. There's two big volcanoes on the big island. There's Mauna Loa and there's Mauna Kea. Mauna Kea is more well-known because it's an astronomical observatory on top of it. And with a collaboration with staff who run those, at least one of the observatories up there from the University of Hawaii, we got a little piece of space up there next to a big telescope to put our analyzer, and we're getting data and have been getting data from Mauna Kea. Now, it's a different place, and we'll have to compare the records after we have both going to see if the Mauna Kea record really is comparable. But our hope is that we'll be able to fill the gap in the Mauna Loa record once we restore measurements with this Mauna Kea record. And the debate generally in the United States at the moment, do you think it's well-focused and rational? Well, one reason I think the debate is becoming less, if you want to call it a debate, I mean, the, the conversation has moved on, is that I think really throughout the United States and probably throughout the world, the unfolding changing climate is really having immediate impacts for people. So it's hard to ignore something that's on your front door or, or knocking down trees in your neighborhood. Or, or, or paradise, a town in California waf yeah. wiped off the map. Yeah, exactly. They're real tragedies that are unfolding. And it's clear that these are not in the normal spectrum of things that would have happened. And so 
people get it, and they get that there are consequences, and then they want to know more about it. And so that's where the scientists come in. But even more than that, they want to do something about it. And that's tricky to know exactly what to do, because there are trade-offs, and the, the, some people will like one approach, some people will like another approach. Our, our role as scientists is not so much to pick winners among that landscape, it's just to make sure we understand the truth of the science as we go on, which, by the way, is changing. I mean, we, we know pretty well what's happened up until now. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen in the next 50 years. We have to keep track. So uh, our role is just to keep our eyes on the ball here, rather than change the rules. What do you hope might happen, not in 50 years, but say 20? Well, I would very much like to see the growth of the CO2 record from Mauna Loa bend over, show that we can slow this thing. So the, the Mauna Loa record right now is kind of a depressing record. It's, it's beautiful science, but it's sad for humanity that it shows what it shows. And I would very much like to live long enough to see it, see it really bending over. I doubt it will flatten in my lifetime, but I would even, even be happier if that happened. But at least bending over so that we can see it approaching some kind of new, better future. You said in the beginning that the parts per million CO2 is about 420. You know there's an organisation in Australia and, of course, in other parts of the world, including the United States, a 350 organisation with ambitions for returning it back to how it was when your father perhaps started measuring. Well, I would point out that it was 315 when my father started measuring, not 350. So you could say the 350.org was already a compromise between what they really would have liked and what might have been achievable. I mean, I agree with the premise of free50.org, and that is that if you really want to reduce CO2 to a level where you, you're mostly out of concerns for, about consequences, you would want to get it down to some level like 350. So I think it is a nice aspiration. From the standpoint of what's required, it's very ambitious. Good to see you again. Thank you. Okay. Yes, thank you, Robin. The Keeling Curve, the biggest curveball in modern history. That was Ralph Keeling, Professor of Geochemistry and Climate Science at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, San Diego. The Science Show on RN.